Welcome to the Let Us Reason podcast. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Listen as Pastor William Shiflett brings us the message, Jesus is God. We've been talking about, and I wanted to come back this morning to this passage. The prologue of John's Gospel is verse 1 through verse 18. He unpacks it. And we've told you many times, then there are these repeated themes throughout. You keep coming back to this concept, and I want to show you that again today. But I wanted to go back to verse 14 before I get there. The prologue, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel begins with an affirmation that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And it ends with an affirmation that Jesus is God when it says here, the one and only Son who is Himself God. So the, the, the prologue begins with Jesus being God and ends with Jesus being God. And this is an incredibly important point for us to get a hold of and cling to in our culture today. Because it is the, the core. Is this what we believe about Jesus? A lot of people in our culture have a lot of mixed up ideas about who Jesus is. But if you want to take the book, if you want to accept the Bible, the Bible says that he is God. Now I wanted to come back today and show you another passage of scripture. For example, the, the centrality of the Christian faith, the central principle is the resurrection. And yet the scripture says the resurrection came about, happened because Jesus was God. Look at this passage of scripture. The reason my father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. Listen to him. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. There's another passage over in Acts and I didn't make a slide for it because you can get into a, a, a little bit of the technicality there. But it says death was unable to hold him. Now, what, can, what person, what man can possibly say that? Or that can be said about what human being can say, death cannot hold me. Only, only God cannot be held by death, ultimately. And so it's very important to see that, that the, the power of the resurrection lies in the secret or the truth that Jesus is God. Now, I wanted to go to this passage again. And this, again, is a picture or an artistic representation of the Old Testament tabernacle. And verse 14, which we read, I want to read it again and unpack it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, this is the 2011 New International Version. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Note that. Made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We touched on this several weeks ago. I came back on a Wednesday night. But I want to unpack it. I want you to see this. He made His dwelling now, what the Old Testament says, John is using Old Testament imagery. He's speaking in the terms and, and illustrations of the Old Testament to make this point that Jesus is God. And he says this, he, the Word became flesh. God, we already know that. God, the Word was God. God became flesh. He took on the form of a man. That's the power of the Christian gospel. But, but I want I to I remind you of this, children. I want you to see this, that no other religion says that. What sets the Christian religion apart, and please hear it, what sets the Christian religion apart from every other religion is the fact that God came as a man. It wasn't a man coming to tell us about God. It was God coming to tell us about himself. Wow. 
This is the Christian gospel, my friends. And this is what John is saying. And he uses this imagery of the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, let me show you the verses, if I can, from the book of Exodus. God says to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me. That's, that's what you see, the sanctuary in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Get that. I will dwell among them. Now look at the next verse where he says it again. And this is Exodus 29, a few chapters later. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. He, he brought them out. He, he brought them out of captivity and bondage to dwell among them. What incredible God. Uh, there's another verse here. And we were watching a show the other night with this guy from over in England teaching. And he just was so incredible and so deep. And there's another verse later on that says, God says this. I will not abhor them. I will dwell with them and I will not abhor them. Get that, please. Get that understanding. God comes down to dwell among people who don't deserve his presence. He comes down to save and rescue and bless us with his presence. This is what we believe as Christians about God taking on flesh. Now look at it. And then the next passage from chapter 40. Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle. It was that big curtain thing around the, the middle's tent. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now get it please. In that verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt and made his dwelling. That word dwelling in the original Greek means to pitch a tent. This is what God was doing. In the Old Testament, they pitched a tent and God came down in his glory and dwelt in that tent. They, he wasn't limited to the tent. But that was where his, his special presence was made known. He wasn't limited to that building, but that's where his special presence was made known. Now, now John picks up on that imagery, and he uses that, and he says, The Word became flesh, took on the form of man, and pitched his tent where we are, and dwelt among us. And, and we saw his glory. Now get it, please. Who came down in the Old Testament tabernacle? God. Whose glory did they see in the Old Testament tabernacle? God. Who, what is John saying? Who came down in the New Testament and took on flesh? God. Whose glory did we see? God. This isn't, Jesus is not just another good religious teacher. He's God. He's God. It's so very important for us to see this. Now, now I, I didn't make a slide for this, but to give an illustration in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says we have this we're, we, we've grown in this tent. He refers to the body as a tent, a tabernacle. And he said, we want the new body, the new tent. So you see that whole concept there in John verse 14. God came down and dwelt among his God did it. In the Old Testament, it was God. In the New Testament, it is God. I want, to, I want you to see something else here. In verse 14, it said, word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then he comes down to verse 16. He says, we've all received of his fullness. Full of grace and truth, we received of his fullness. Now notice these passages from the book of Colossians. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in, in Jesus. Fullness. For in Christ, 
all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form. This isn't just a good man that God has sent. When we get over to chapter 3, we're going to see this. Nicodemus comes out to see Jesus one night. And he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus doesn't say, thank you for the compliment. The first thing he says is, you've got to be born again. See, Nicodemus, you think you know a lot, but you know nothing or else you would know. I'm not a teacher come from God. I am God who has come to teach. There's a big difference with those two things. And he says, Nicodemus, you're, you're very religious. You, you've got all the pedigrees, but you don't know anything because you don't realize I'm God. I've come in the flesh. To show you the way to the Father. Man, it's incredible. Now, John continues this emphasis, as I said, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he comes down to verse 14. The Word became flesh, the same image of the Old Testament. And then he comes to verse 18, and he says this. No one has seen God at any time. Now, this is the New King James. I emphasize it because some of you use the King James or the New King James. And uh, it's written differently. And I have to get technical in just a moment. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son. And the oldest manuscripts say the only begotten God. Now that's an important consideration. So I want to read it both ways to you. And then I'm going to show you the newer versions and how they tie these two thoughts together. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Or the oldest, earliest manuscripts say, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God has declared him. The earliest manuscripts, the writings of the church fathers emphasize, and it's a subtle distinction, but it, it emphasizes the only begotten God. Now get this, please. And next slide. This is the way the New International and the New Living Translation rendered, and they combine both of those thoughts. The only begotten Son, who is Himself God. And that's why it reads this way in, the, in this verse, version. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, He has made Him known. And I want to draw two concepts, two jarring affirmations that are so relevant for where we are today and for people in this room. And few folks you know, friends, family member, it's so very important that we get this. He says, no one has seen God. Now there are so many implications I'm going to try to draw out of that today. He says, no one has seen God except God. The only person, now notice, notice please, you, you're right, we do believe that in the, we, we, what we call theophanies, in the Old Testament, people had encounters with God. And Samson's mother, and, and, and Gideon, and, and Abraham. And people would say, the, the angel of the Lord would come down and they would say, uh, after this encounter, they would say, oh, I'm going to drop dead, I've seen God. They were afraid of it. Because it was a pre-incarnate manifestation of God. God took physical form before the birth of Christ. They saw a person who looked like God. They saw a manifestation but no one had ever seen God in the fullness of his glory. This is what Moses says. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And, and, Moses, and God says to Moses, no man can see my face and live. The, the glory of God is so uh, beyond word, beyond description. We had a, 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 a desire to ask a question Wednesday night <coughs> about a school friend. And I want to pause and say this to you, you older folks. 
Our young people are asking real life questions. It's not all about video games and basketball games and Little League. They're asking some real world questions. And, and one of the questions that, that this uh, young man asked Desire at school was that, uh, how could one God have made all the things that we see? How could one God do that? And we talked about the fact your concept of God is very flawed and weak if you think that. The, the concept of God and what the scripture talks about God is he's so great that you cannot com comprehend him and you cannot look at him in his, what shall we say, natural state. Because the, the awesomeness of it would be just be too much. Uh, remember in Isaiah, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And he means the manifestation of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord in the temple. He was high and lifted up. And his, his train filled the temple. And the doorpost of the temple moved and shook with the presence of God. And the psalmist says, the Lord comes down and touches the mountains. And they melt like wax. And they, they tremble because of his glory. And what, what Jesus is saying, what John is saying here about God, no one has ever seen his glory in its full understand your concept except for Jesus, who is himself God. Now, let me say this to you, because that's not just an Old Testament implication. Today in our culture, and, and it's, it is one of the greatest challenges for the Christian church, in relation to the word of faith, charismatic community. Because they speak of God in such familiar terms. They talk about having seen him and talked to him. He's come into the room. And there's no majesty, there's no glory, there's no mention of trembling or falling down before him. You just have a conversation like you would after a ball game on Sunday afternoon. This, is, this steals something of God's majesty and glory. So I want you to see that even in the spirit age in which we're living... Even when we've been saved and redeemed by God, this element of God's majesty and mystery of Him being beyond all comprehension remains. Look at this passage from the book of 1 Timothy. Listen, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in His own time. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Stop. Because on Wednesday night we've been talking about the, how the New Testament calls Jesus God. And how Jesus referred to himself as God. And here's another example. Because if you go back in the Old Testament, King of Kings and Lord of Lords is a title applied to God. But in the New Testament, you see this applied to Jesus. In this verse, it's being applied to God the Father. But when you get over to Revelation, you see it twice refer applied to Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one, three in one, the Trinity. Now note this here. Note this, please. I get it. Watch it. God of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can, to him be blessing and honor and might forever. Notice that even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaking, who claims to have had all these manifestations and all these revelations, yet he says... That something hasn't changed. In our relationship with God, the big things changed. We've been welcomed and adopted into the family. But as it relates to God's character and majesty, one thing has not changed. No one has seen him or can see him in his incredible, majestic glory. That's why you get over to the book of Revelations. 
And John says, I looked and I saw a throne and there was one sitting on the throne. That's all he could see. That's all he could say. He couldn't give any description because of the majesty. And you never see it. You never see a physical description of God. Well, I've got to, I've got to save my outline. I want you to see this. This too jarring. This is the first jarring affirmation is no one has seen God. The second affirmation is that this person, Jesus, knows God in intimate terms. Now, let's take just a moment to talk about that. Because like so many other words in our culture, intimate has been hijacked and it's been turned into a sexual word. We say to people, have you been intimate with that person? If you go to the store with your wife and she goes into the ladies section, I emphasize I'm not going into that section alone. I want everybody to understand that I go with her. And there's a sign that says intimates. The word intimate has been turned into a sexual word in our culture. It's been turned into something that's just related. And so it's a lot, it's especially hard for men. It's especially hard for men when we're talking about God and we talk about being intimate with God. And it almost, because we have allowed that word to be turned into a sexual word when it means so much more than that. And here are some synonyms, please, for that word. Familiar, confidential, private, secret, innermost, thorough, detailed, in-depth. What we really mean when we say, I'm intimate with someone, and I'm in an intimate relationship, it does not have to mean sexual. It means I know things about them that they have chosen to reveal to me. That's why husbands and wives should have a very intimate relationship and goes beyond sex. It's about sharing of, of, of who we are and the secrets that nobody else knows. I, 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 this is the concept. And, and Jesus is saying, I know God because I'm God, because I'm one with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, I can't understand that. Welcome to the club. We're talking about God. And if your idea of God is a nice little neat package and box and you're trying to figure everything out, you are doomed to never know him. Because he's beyond our full comprehension. We know what he has revealed about himself, but there are things about himself we cannot begin to comprehend, and therefore he has not. And I tell you today that even in heaven, throughout eternity, there's going to be that majesty and that concept of God. In the book of Revelations, Jesus comes from heaven. Whether you want to accept that as a literal picture or not, he's coming from heaven. And it says he has a name written on his vesture, which no one knows but himself. There's a mystery to God. You should expect some mystery with God. I, I wonder, I wonder, I, I, I'm stunned by people saying, you know, I want a religion that's got some mystery to it. All right. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God. God, God eternally existing, becoming a baby in the womb of a mother. That's some mystery, amen? How this blood spilled 2,000 years ago cleanse my sin today. There's some mystery. We must be careful. That we don't use the claim of mystery as a justification for going on in our rebellion against God. Amen? There is mystery to God. And this is so very important. Jesus says, I'm the one who is in intimate relation. I know things about him no one else knows. And only I can tell you what those things are. Now note this. In that passage, it said, the only begotten God the only begotten Son, the one in closest relationship, has made Him known, has declared Him. Do I have that on the next slide? 
There are two really technical words I want to give you just now. This is the first one. Eisegesis means to read into it, to read into a text what you want it to say. Here's what I think, and I see that in that passage. And they read into it. And you have to be careful, children. You know this. I've told you this, and I'll repeat it again and again. There are churches, and this is not a wave of banner for us. There are churches that do not take the effort to unpack the scriptures appropriately. And they read things into it that aren't there. And you're absolutely right that there are teachings within what we call Christendom today that are not biblical because people are reading things into it that isn't there. Last week, we saw this with, uh, Will had a question about the prosperity gospel. And I touched on the fact that they read something that isn't there. For example, look at this passage of scripture from Mark. Mark 4, 3 and 8. Listen, a farmer went out to sow a seed. Seed fell on good ground. It came up, grew and produced a crop, multiplying a hundred times. Now that's a snipped piece. That's a paraphrase. I've taken out some of the relevant stuff. But I want you to see that's what they do. They clip out parts of the passage and then tell you this is what it means when it doesn't mean that at all. And they use this verse to say, see, you sow the seed and you're going to reap and you're going to be profitable and successful and you're going to have lots of money. Well, there's just one small problem with that. If I go to the next slide and see the actual verse, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60 and some 100 times. When you hear somebody say, you sow the seed and God's going to give you a hundredfold return. That's not what that verse says. But I want you to notice the next part of the verse. Because in verse 14, as Jesus is explaining the parable, he says, the sower sows the word. The fruit being reaped is not money, it's souls coming to Christ. As we sow the seed and it falls in good soil that's been prepared by God, people come to Christ. It is not money. That's being spoken of there. They're reading into it. And I'll give you a hundred other examples of that. I don't have time to do it this morning. The other word that we need to see is exegesis. And exegesis means to explain. It's expository. It's what I'm doing right here. When I tell you this verse means, this Greek word means, this passage conveys. Here's what the church taught. It's called ex expository or expository preaching or exegesis pulling things out not reading things in pulling things out now here's why that real technical word, word is important he has declared him that's the greek word that we get exegesis from jesus is unpacking god he's expounding on god he's telling us things about god that no one else knows you can't find it in Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. You can only find it in Christ because he's the only one that's been in the presence of God and knows him intimately more than anyone else. You see, that's the part we don't like. In our culture, there are tens of thousands of people who will wave a banner for Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And many people in our culture, some sitting in our church week after week, think all I need to do is just believe. As long as I believe, I'm okay. No, no. You have to believe what Jesus says about God. And you have to accept that in your heart and life. I'll note this, please. I want you to see this. this. Jesus says, he, the, John says that Christ has declared, he's unpacked, he's made the Father known in ways that we cannot. Now get this life lesson, please. Get this life lesson. The law tells us what God expects. Remember that verse, verse 17. 
For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came from, through Jesus Christ. The law tells us what God expects, how you should live, what you should or shouldn't do. Jesus tells us what God is like. And see, this is the problem for many people. They get the first part, don't do this, don't do that. And they never get the second part. And here's why it's important. Please, are you listening? This is why it's important. I wrote it down in my outline. I'm going to read it just as I wrote it. Listen. Now, you've got to follow me. Stay with me. How we live is less important than why we live that way. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it isn't important to live a certain way. There are expectations God has for his people. And we are responsible to live as he expects. But I want you to hear this today. Hear it. Many people, listen, many people live the Christian life so they can go to heaven. How many people in the room that you would say that? How many people do you and I know who don't get serious about God till the time comes for them to die? Because what they think it is about going to a place. Serving Christ means going to a place at the end of my life. That comes from knowing what God expects. He expects me to live a certain way so when I die, I can go to heaven. But get this, please. Many people live the Christian life so they can go to heaven when it should be lived because of who God is and what he has done. Listen, the Christian should live because they want to please someone rather than get someplace. You see, this idea of going to heaven is wonderful, but you don't know when you're going to die. You might live another 30, 40, 50, 60 years before you kick off. Nobody knows how many years. And if you just say, I'm living the Christian life so I can get to heaven, heaven is so far down the road. It's way out of your perception. And you lose your motivation. And other things will crowd your vision. And they will become more important to you. But when you are living for God because of what he has done for you, it changes your whole outlook. And what Jesus wants is not only to tell us what God expects. He wants us to realize that God has met the expectation through his son. And that gives us a basis for rejoicing and celebration and living in relationship with a person. And not just aiming for a place out there. Jessica sent me a Facebook video. I told her it's about six minutes long. I told her I would unpack it. And it's about a guy who was a pastor. And he's now decided he doesn't believe anymore. He's left the church. And, I, I, and he, he touches on one thing. I don't have time to get off on it. But he touches on one thing. And I'm, saying, I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute. You didn't know that before you, you stood in the pulpit and preached. And you didn't know that thing that you now say is the basis of rejecting God? I tell you, that person had a so shallow an idea of God to begin with. They did not know who he was. And Jesus says, I didn't come just to tell you how to live. I did do that. But now I want to tell you why you should live that way. And you should live that way because of the majesty of the Father. Yeah, wow. Amen? This is the God we serve. Now notice two points to ponder this morning. First one, please. You can only know better than Christ if you have seen or known the Father in greater intimacy. See, here's why you got one of two choices. You either have to say the Bible is unreliable. Let's stop there. That's what a lot of people say. But if you really believe the Bible is unreliable, you couldn't even go to church. One thing I don't understand is people go to church and say, I don't believe in the Bible. 
I, I, I want to believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible. Well, I have to update you and let you know that the Bible is the predominant book on the planet that tells us about Jesus. And if you reject the Bible, what you're doing is establishing your own concept of God. And you're claiming that you know more about it. It's so funny. People say that Christianity is so exclusive. All religions are exclusive. The Mormons are exclusive because they don't, when you say I'm a Christian, they don't stop coming to see you. They keep coming. Why? Because they think you're wrong and they're right. And the Jehovah Witnesses, people say, I love the beauty of Buddhism. Did you know that Buddha was a Hindu who decided Hinduism wasn't working for him? So he started his own religion. We have to get this understanding and this concept that when I reject what Christ says, I'm either saying the Bible's not reliable or I'm saying I know more about God than he does. Now, hear me. You can know a lot more about God than the preacher does. You can know a lot more about God than your family members do. You can know about a lot more about God than some preacher on TV, but you cannot know more about God than God knows about himself. And Jesus says, I'm the one that has come to tell you what God is like. And you have to take it all. Boy, that's, that's not part of my message. Or I'll, I'm afraid I'll forget it. So let me just touch on it quickly. Well, I believe God is love. Wonderful. I do too. I'm grateful for his love. But you better read the rest of what Jesus says about the Father. He's also righteous and godly and he will not pardon sin. We come under the shadow and the, and the covering of Christ or we stand in rebellion and alienation from God. Many people like the first part. Man, I like that part about God's love. Other stuff. Then you haven't accepted what Jesus said about the Father. Amen? Yes. Well, I guess still, man. Look at these passages of Scripture, please. John chapter 7, 5, rather. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Get it? You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. I, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to accept what Jesus says. Well, right here, Jesus says that no one has ever seen God. Remember what I told you at the beginning? You have this repeat, this overlap, this re-emphasis. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. Here, Jesus is saying, no one's ever seen God. I'm the only one that knows. Now, where are you today in your attitudes about Christ? Are you prepared to say that I know more about God than God's son? And if you cannot make that claim, then it's time we get serious about what Jesus says. Amen. Look at this. No one is my word does not dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. Look at this. John chapter six, verse 46. No one has seen the father except the one who is from God. Jesus, only he has seen the father. You see, when I say, when I look at this book and I see something Christ teaches, and then I say, I don't believe that. That doesn't apply to me. That's for church people. What you're really saying is I know more about God than God himself. And I hope you can see the, the sweeping arrogance of that. I read the book by William Wilberforce, who spent 30 years of his life trying to end the slave trade in England. Gave away great portions of wealth. Helped start the SPCA for all you animal freaks. It was a Christian, a Christian that started the SPCA in England with the help of two other men. And when he comes to the death, when he comes to die, a friend says to him, you'll be okay. And he says, I hope so. Didn't he have faith? Yes, he did have faith, but he did not have a trust in his own goodness. 
And into the last moment of his life, he was putting his trust in the one who made all of it possible. Jesus says, I'm the only one that knows God. Now that leads us to the second point to ponder this morning. Any truth claim not rising nor not rising from nor consistent with Christ's teaching is false. Is false. If it contradicts what Jesus said, and you're right, you're right, you're right. You're right, we have, to, we have to examine it, we have to unpack it. We have to look at this, what the church has said throughout its history. We must be on our guard. You can be deceived. There are deceivers on the loose in our culture, even in the church. One of the things many people miss, Jesus says, talks about, when the New Testament talks about false prophets, it says they're in the church. We look at them, we look for them out on the street. We look at, at them for down the road. But Jesus and Paul and Peter and James say they're in the church. And so we must be careful. We have to unpack the scriptures. I grant you that. But when we have settled the fact that this is what Christ said, anything that contradicts. Thank you for listening to the Let Us Reason podcast. We pray that it has been a blessing. This podcast is produced by Reasoning Tree Church. 14085 Old Valley Pike, Edinburgh, Virginia 22824. Service times, 10.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship. 7 p.m. Wednesday evening Bible study. Telephone, 540-984-3223.